you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to John chapter one, which is in the New Testament. John chapter one, you take out those message notes for those of you here in the room. Before we get started, I just have a couple of things to just go over. If you go to our, um, our webpage on uh, YOBL, there'll be some links there. One of them is resources that you can, you can purchase on Amazon or wherever. And, uh, and there's just like books to read that you can follow along as we as we teach out this whole, this whole year, the year of biblical literacy, I have one sample. I'll just give three of, three of these away today here in the room. If you're online, you know, sorry, you just got to come in person, uh, for this. This book is called Seven Things I Wish Christians Knew About the Bible by theologian Michael Bird. He's one of my faves. Uh, anybody want this here in the room? All right. I'm just going to walk around. Here we go. If you take this, you just got to promise to read it, all right? You can't just put it on your shelf. Anybody over here want this? You going to read it? Okay. <laughs> there we go. All right, that's a great book. Part of this book is uh, one of my study materials for today's message, in particular at the end, if you want to read that. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. So last week, if you missed, we learned what the Bible is. We spent a whole week asking the question, what is the Bible? And we learned the definition is on the notes. Uh, the Bible is a library. It's not necessarily just a book. It's a book of books, a small library of writings that are both divinely given and humanly composed that together tell a unified narrative which leads us to Jesus. And in last week's message, I did some uh, some illustrations I expressed a fair amount of geekery, didn't I, with the Marvel Cinematic Universe, using that as an illustration of phased storytelling that, uh, that, has, uni- that has unified narratives in it. And what I didn't tell you, though, is, um, well, uh, actually, something that I need to tell you next week, because I think, I think the slide didn't make it into the message, so... Uh, it, sh- it should have. So, so, so look for that next week. I'm just, it's a, it's another teaser. So, uh, it, it turns out that there's a sort of a secret identity of the reader family and you'll just have to find out next week. So this is all part of our quest to read the scriptures, as Scott said in the announcement video through the year 2022 to live out these scriptures. And our dream is that each and every one of us who's following along would, would read the Bible for ourselves, for yourself, that the Lord would light a fire in your heart for God's word. And that fire wouldn't just last through this year, but through your whole life, that you would have a love for God's word, that you would have a desire to read the scriptures and to get to know Jesus better as you, as you search the scriptures, study the scriptures, memorize the scriptures. We talked about last week, the Bible is the most criticized book in human history, but you know, the Bible doesn't seem to mind criticism all that much. You can picture the Bible being like this huge mountain of granite and someone comes along and throws, you know, a rock at it or a pebble or shoots an arrow. It's just going to bounce off. You know, the Bible doesn't seem to care a whole lot about that. The scriptures just carry on through time, continuing to change lives, giving hope, giving the gospel. But the Bible, though, doesn't like two things. There's two things the Bible doesn't like. First, the Bible doesn't like to be ignored. To be ignored, to just put your Bible on a shelf and collect dust or shove it in a drawer. If you have electronic versions, you never double tap, you never open that thing up. We know that culture for several generations in America has become biblically illiterate. That's no surprise. But what is a surprise to some is that now Christians are becoming biblically illiterate. The people of the Bible don't read their Bibles because, well, life gets busy, the Bible's on the shelf, 
people get distracted, uh, people get, uh, get pulled away, we're too entertained, we're too, we're too just pulled by the, the, the lures of the world, the, the, just, just, the, just the, the way life is, it's geared towards us not being in their Bible. This is not good for Christians. So the Bible doesn't like being ignored, and the Bible doesn't like, secondly, to be changed. The Bible does not like when people come along and try to mutate it and change it to fit their agendas. And this is happening, uh, I think, more now than perhaps ever before. People coming along and, uh, and, and wanting to improve on the Bible, make it more relevant for modern thinking, as it were. So people will, uh, will alter the Bible. They'll take sections out. They'll, uh, they'll misread. They'll misuse. They'll misapply. They'll bring different dictionaries to certain words to the table. They'll repackage it, imposing a completely different message than what God had originally set down to fit their sociopolitical views. Do you know what I'm talking about, church? People are doing this all the time, and it's really frustrating. And sometimes they do it so well, you kind of wonder, like, is this really true or not? It doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem like what I, what I hear in church. But it's, but it's something that we have to be aware of. Agendas, human agendas. And God doesn't like this. In fact, he warns us against doing this, against altering the scriptures. We have to remember, these are God's words that God gave to us. He gave them exactly as he intended. And so we must take the scriptures as God has given us the scriptures. It don't need no improving. Amen. Somebody give me an amen. It don't need no changing. It don't need no altering. Just, you know, leave it alone in that sense, but don't leave it alone in that it's collecting dust. Pick it up and read it and see what God says for himself. That's, that's the premise of today. So this is all part of why we're doing the year of biblical literacy. We want to reverse the neglect cycle and to learn for ourselves what it says. Now, my job, guys, as pastor here is to teach you the scriptures. That's part of what my job is, a big part. I spend a lot of time uh, prepping these messages, and some of you are like, you really? You do? It doesn't seem like it. Well, okay, I get that, but my job is to teach you Scripture, to feed you God's Word, but that's not all my job is. My job is to also teach you how to feed yourself. You know, growing up, raising kids... You know, when your kids are wee, wee ones, you feed them. You gotta cook for them. You gotta, you know, and, and when they're little, you gotta actually shove the food in their face and make sure they close it down and they, you know, and you get it in there, right? But as kids get older, what do you do is p- good parenting, if you will, is teaching kids to make their own sandwich. So by the time they're in college or their college age, they can feed themselves and they're not living on your couch, raiding your, you know, raiding your leftovers their whole life. That's good. That's a good uh, development. So my job is to teach you how to feed yourself, meaning to encourage you and to train you how to read the Bible, understand the scriptures so that nobody can ever come along and mess with you and bring an alternate deceptive view of the Bible and you can just pick it out for yourself. So that's one of the many reasons why we're doing Yobel this year. Are you with me, guys? Are you reading? Are you, are you getting this? Okay, I'm so passionate. Now, last week we ended by looking at what the Bible is all about. So that's what I want to talk about in greater detail. What is the Bible about? Okay, it's a big book, and it's about a lot of things, but it has this unified narrative. We said this last week. This unified narrative leads us to Jesus. The Bible is about Jesus. The Bible is about Christ. Christ is the hero of the scriptures. It all points to him. 
Some people say, well, the Bible is just a collection of, of ethical stories to teach us moral principles about life. Some people say the Bible is a, a book of, of miracles, cool miracles that God has done throughout history. Maybe it is some of that, right? But more than those things, the Bible is a single unfolding true story that coordinates itself upon Jesus. And when we get to the New Testament phase of the Bible, it's all about Jesus front and center, and, and it's about his life and what he taught. And then later in the New Testament, it's about how Christ followers are to live their lives and how to organize themselves in communities and what that looks like. And then at the end of the New Testament, it's all about what eternity is going to be like when we have unfettered access, face-to-face access to Jesus himself in heaven. And when we, when we see Christ, all right, and when we're here in heaven in face to face, what the next 60 billion years is going to be like. That's also what the New Testament says. It says that Jesus is the meta narrative of the Bible. Meta narrative is a $5 word. We looked at this yesterday. Meta narrative is a term in, uh, in literature that means the master story. All right, the master plot line, the transhistoric plot line that gives meaning and purpose to all other plot lines. Jesus is that, all right? He gives meaning and purpose to all of creation, including your life and my life. So we come to this conclusion about the meta narrative, about Jesus being the center point of the Bible. We're, we're building on 2,000 years of Christian scholarship, right? We've got 2,000 years of starting with the apostles, the church fathers. We actually also have today more access to the scriptures, more access to study materials than in any point in human history. Uh, you can get online and get to websites and you can, you can read the Bible in the original languages. You can, you can double click on things. What used to take pastors hours and hours to unpack in sermons, you can literally do with no seminary education. You can do right there, uh, in your living room, on your laptop, on your iPad. It's incredible. We have so much access to understand that Jesus is the focus of the Bible. But what fascinates me is when you read the Bible that some regular folks way back 2000 years ago also noticed that Jesus was the center point of the Bible. They didn't have all those tools. This is first recorded for us in John chapter 1. Specifically, I want to read with you verses 43 through 45. John 1, 43 through 45. Listen to this. This is a fascinating account. It's early on in Christ's ministry. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to Nathanael, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now this is a, okay, let's stop right there. This is like a little, okay, little blurb. It's like kind of sneaks up on you, but this is very, very important. Philip, this blows my mind that Philip got this so quickly. Philip got who Jesus was. Jesus hadn't really, at this point in the timeline, publicly, he hadn't done a whole lot. All right, not in comparison to what he would do in the next three plus years. But somehow Philip, with a limited sample size of Jesus, he got who Jesus was almost right away. He figured it out. 
Look at what it says again. Look at verse 45 again. He says, he's around Jesus a little bit and then he runs to his buddy, Nate, and he says, Nate, we have found him of whom Moses and the law wrote about and the prophets wrote about. His name is Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, Philip is an interesting person in the New Testament. He's one of the 12 disciples, but we don't really know a whole lot about him. There's, there's not a whole lot of mention of him after this, just a few times. And, and his contribution as being one of the 12, 11 apostles, the 12, uh, is, is kind of limited in terms of, of the biblical content. But perhaps right here, his contribution is the greatest. He hangs around Jesus. He watches Jesus. He hears some teaching. And he just, he looks at Jesus and he goes, I, 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 I know you. I know you. We're not from the same town. You're from a different town, but I know you, man. You, you, you are so familiar to me. In fact, you, you, you're the one. You're the one, Jesus. You're the guy I've been hearing about my whole life. You're the guy I've been reading about. Moses wrote about you. You're so familiar. And so he runs to his buddies and he says, I know him. I know this guy. And in fact, you know this guy. Let me take you to him. Moses, of course, wrote the Torah. The Torah, the first five books in the Bible, in the Old Testament. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And then Moses also wrote one of the Psalms. So Moses was a prolific author of the Bible. And the prophets, Philip mentions. That's just people, other people who wrote the scriptures. So not just Moses, but everybody. All of the rest of the Old Testament authors. Question for you. How did Philip know who Jesus was so quickly? Pardon? That's right. He read his Bible. He knew his Bible. Exactly. Everybody gets a free, a free pat on the back from me. Who got that? You're just doing great. Just doing fantastic. An air hug. All right. Now, for a Jewish kid growing up in the first century, Philip most likely listened to the Bible mostly. He listened to the scriptures being read as a kid in synagogue. The, the rabbis or the elders would do, would do regular long readings of parts of the Bible and they would explain it. They would teach it out. So he listened to his rabbis reading it. So just as an aside, some of you who are doing the Bible in a year, the cover to cover aspect of Yobel, listen, if you're not into reading as much or reading is a struggle or your main learning channel isn't reading, it's more auditory, then listen to the Bible. You can follow along in the reading plan by, by just getting on Spotify. There's free, there's free tracks of the whole Bible of people just reading it. Uh, out loud. And so you can just go right to a chapter in Spotify. It's free. There's multiple versions of it. There's free ones online. If you have other apps, other Bible apps, the YouVersion Bible app, which we use a lot, has this all online. Sometimes you can even buy some from actors. You know, you can have James Earl Jones reading the Bible, you know, Darth Vader in that deep voice. I mean, it's really cool. And then sometimes there's like, there's, I even found like a hip hop one. It's so tight. It's like, it's got like a beat behind it. And the guy's just got like rhythm. And I'm like, man, I'm getting more out of the Bible. I'm, I'm nothing like this. I have no rhythm, but boy, it's really, it's really neat. So, so listening to scripture is another way to go through this. Now, this is what happened for Philip. Now he may have been taught to read Hebrew. Some Hebrew boys in the first century were put into school, 
But if he was, access to actually having a copy of the scriptures would have been limited for Philip. Usually, the only Bible, Old Testament Bible, found in a village was attached to the synagogue. And these were really long scrolls, and they were very valuable. So they were kind of confined. But despite all of these challenges, right, Philip knew his Bible. He listened to his Bible. He read his Bible. He, he absorbed his Bible. And so he knew when Jesus came along who Jesus was because he paid attention. I love this. Now, I, I don't know. Philip, as a kid, uh, Hebrew kids, they, they had a different growing up in the first century than we did. Uh, duh. I mean, they, they had like, they had like uh, rocks and a sling maybe to play with. And then they worked a lot, and then they learned their daddy's trade. Hebrew boys did, Jewish boys. And so, you know, the content that they were getting at synagogue was the most stuff they got, like, all week. So it was, like, really interesting to them because they didn't have any other options, right, or very few. So so today, it's a challenge, right? We have We have so many options to grab our attention and our imagination, we have, we have unlimited access to entertainment, to Netflix, to Amazon Prime and, you know, Paramount Plus or whatever, you know, six bucks a month can get you literally, uh, uh, thousands of films, thousands, hundreds of thousands of hours of, uh, of bad television to occupy yourself. Uh, I, I think at some point in the day, uh, I read this recently, uh, all of the internet traffic in America uh, in certain points of the day, like 40% of it is Netflix streaming. I mean, that's crazy. That's crazy, right? But it's true. And so, and so we just have so many things that will draw us off track. But as a kid, Philip, he, 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 he was enraptured by the scriptures. And so when he saw Christ and he heard Christ, he recognized Christ because Jesus was the living embodiment of what he had heard in the Bible his whole life. That's, that's him. That's him. It's him, you guys. It's him. Oh, it's Jesus. It's, it's Jesus from Nazareth. He was aware, Philip, of where Jesus was raised, Nazareth. Nazareth was a tiny village. So if you go in your Bible maps to the top of the Sea of Galilee and then you just head west, I don't know, about 7 to 14 miles is Nazareth, and it's really in a podunk area. Like nothing happened in Nazareth. Nothing ever happened there. It, there was no military base. There was just nothing. It was just a small village. And it, it, that threw people. Uh, I don't know what the equivalent of, of this is in Douglas County. Where is something where nothing ever happens in Douglas County? Well, it's Douglas County. It's the whole county, right? Okay, no, what? I mean, even, so like, I don't know, I was thinking about this, like Roseburg's kind of a hub, but like, then there's green, you know, green, what's green? I've asked people in green, what's green? And people who lived in green their whole life don't even know what green is. They're like, I don't know, it's just a place. It's like a, it's not a town. Is green a town? No, it's not a town, but it's also not part of officially a town. It's outside of Roseburg. Uh, and, uh, and nothing, does anything ever happen in green? Green's a color, all right? That's where I'm at. It's a color, and it's a place. If nothing happens. It's like Nazareth. Uh, I don't know. So people were looking at Jesus, 
And they knew he was from Nazareth and they concluded, well, he couldn't be the Messiah because nothing ever comes from Nazareth. But somehow Philip, that didn't throw him. Why? Because he knew his Bible. There was no biblical criteria for the Messiah that filtered a Messiah out from being from Nazareth. And so he concluded that because he knew his scriptures, well, who cares if he's from Nazareth? Because the scriptures don't speak of that. They speak of where the Messiah is born, but not where he's raised. And oh, and by the way, Jesus was born in the place where the prophets predicted. Ah, wow. So guys, I met the one that Moses wrote about. This is Philip. He's here, guys. Let me take you to him. Come and and meet him. You got to meet him for yourself. And so Philip gives us this beautiful model of how to approach the scriptures when we read the scriptures even today. He sets this pattern for us. It's in two parts. Here's your fill-in, your first one. As we read the scriptures, this is Philip's model. We need to be thinking Jesusly about the scriptures. We're processing scripture with a Jesus set of lenses because this is how the scriptures were meant to be read. They point us to Christ. They culminate on the Son of God. And the Old Testament conveys a series of promises and patterns that find their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. And so we read the scriptures with a set of Jesus. We think Jesusly about, oh, what, what, where is Jesus in this? Can I find, can I find a bit and piece of Jesus in this story? And this is how we read the scriptures because they're about him. And so we look for bits and pieces of him in this story, in the stories we read in the Old Testament. Now that said, that doesn't mean that, that we, 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 we ignore the specific parts of the Old Testament uh, and we, we only see, you know, well, how does this relate? Like, for example, the story, uh, the true story of David and Bathsheba, you know, King David, uh, he, he commits adultery and then he commits murder and he's a bad guy. He's a mess. And, uh, and so we read this story and the conclusion isn't just, well, Jesus will come along and be the better king because David failed. Now, that is a conclusion, but there's more to it than that. Let's also talk about the abuse of power. Let's also talk about lust and, and it's, it's, it's when it gets a hold of you. Let's talk about violence. Let's talk about these things because that's what it's also about as well. You see what I mean? One of the early church fathers who lived in uh, circa uh, AD 160, 165, uh, he was a defender of Christianity. His name was Melito. Melito uh, was a, a, a writer. Uh, he was a, a, a bishop. He was a pastor. And he was a defender of Christianity to, to Christianity's opponents, including the emperor Marcus Aurelius, who was a huge uh, a persecutor of the early church. Melito was one of the first guys that we have way back in the, in the second century to think, to tell us to think Jesusly about the scriptures. Melito said this, if you wish to see the mystery of the Lord in the scriptures, then look at Abel, who was likewise slain. Then look at Isaac, who was likewise tied up. Look at Joseph, who was likewise traded. At Moses, who was likewise exposed. At David, who was likewise hunted down. And so we're seeing then early in Christian history how the the church fathers, starting with the apostles, began to process the Bible in light of the gospel. They saw Christ and it motivated the early Christians to search for Jesus and find his presence in the scriptures. All right, so the flip side of the model is we're to think uh, Jesusly about scripture, but then the flip side is to think scripturally about Jesus. 
Now, I know I'm making up some new words here. Uh, I'm turning nouns into adverbs, but, you know, hey, you were here when it happened, all right? It works. So what this means is simply when it comes to knowing who Jesus is, our primary source is the scriptures, our primary source. The Bible tells us what Jesus is like, tells us his name, tells us his character, tells us what he has done, what he has accomplished, talks to us about his attributes. When it comes to Jesus, our best source to understand him are the scriptures. And so when we approach Jesus, when we ask the question, who is Jesus? We're not necessarily consulting extra biblical sources, although there are many that talk about Jesus. Our first place that we consult is the scriptures. We approach Jesus from a scriptural framework. We're reading the Bible with Jesus in mind, and we're understanding Jesus with scripture in mind. This is how Christians for 2,000 years have been reading the scriptures. Now, to illustrate this, uh, and uh, I, I have a drawing that I, I mean, you may have seen this. Let's, let's put this up on the screen. This is from an artist named M.C. Escher. Have you ever seen this? Uh, Escher uh, was, is really big in visual paradoxes and optical illusions. Uh, when I was a, a civil engineer, we, we would look at a lot of Escher because a lot of his paradoxes involve buildings and things. This is called drawing hands. And, and I like it because it sort of approximates this model, right? The scriptures tell us about Jesus, and then Jesus causes the scriptures to be written. And so it's an interesting image if you've never seen it before. It's, it's perhaps an imperfect illustration, but it does describe at least approximately the, the convictions that Christians have had about their Bibles. Okay, let's keep going. Uh, we want to look at one other verse. Uh, this is now uh, flip, flip backwards to Luke, Luke chapter 24. And I want to read a, a, a verse in, in Luke 24, starting in, in 13, where we see Jesus himself teaching on what the Bible is all about. Luke is describing a post-resurrection appearance of Jesus. He appears to two guys. Two guys are walking down the road. This is about three days after the cross. And they're talking about everything that's gone on. This is right outside of Jerusalem. A lot of lots happened, as you are aware, well aware. Here's what it says. On that very day, verse 13, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. <laughs> oh, man, this is awesome. Verse 16, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And Jesus said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. So they stop walking and they just, and they're just talking to this guy. They don't recognize the guy's Jesus. Then one of them named Cleopas answered Jesus, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in the last few days? Where have you been? What's going on, bud? Have you been stuck in a hole somewhere? And then he said to him, what things? Do you think Jesus didn't know what was going on? Or do you think this was like, okay. 
And then they said to him, well, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes. And beside all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the guy's tomb earlier in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back and they had said they had had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb to check out the lady's stories and they found it was just as the women had said, but they didn't see Jesus. They didn't see him. And so these two dudes are walking away from Jerusalem. They've got about seven miles out of town and they're talking about all this. And Jesus rolls up and they give them the perfect recap. And so then what Jesus says, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. What a Bible study that would have been. 28, so they drew near the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but then they urged him strongly saying, stay with us. We don't want you to leave, man. This is too good of a Bible study. You got to stick with us here for it is toward the evening and and the day is now far spent. So Jesus went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and he blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose and they returned to Jerusalem. This is a great story. This is one of the best passages. It is so cool. I mean, it has so much here. A couple of observations. First observation. Jesus teaches the scriptures are about himself. This is what Jesus teaches the guys. When Jesus teaches the Bible here, he teaches that the scriptures are about him. So the idea that the Bible is all about Jesus, we didn't just make this up, all right? We didn't just kind of come to this independently, right? This actually came from Christ himself. When, when you ask Jesus what the Bible is all about, what did Jesus say? He said, well, the Bible's about me. So we get this from Christ, and he taught this repeatedly throughout his ministry. It wasn't even just post-res. We see this in verse 27, right? That, that He says the beginning, let's look at it again, in verse 27, the beginning and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. But there's other instances. Again, in John chapter five, John chapter five, this is, this is before Jesus was crucified. He's having sort of this, this repartee with, with the religious leaders, with the Pharisees. And, and he's like, you guys are really you think you know the Bible. He says the scariest thing, but you don't see what the Bible's all about. The Bible points to me and you refuse. You refuse to go there. It's a very scary verse. You can read the Bible your whole life and get it wrong. That's what Jesus is saying. Again, he teaches it in Luke chapter 16 and again in Luke chapter 12. Jesus teaches this over and over again. 
So the authority on the Bible, Jesus, because it's his book, if Jesus says what the book is about, then we have to take that as the truth of the book because the author of the book determines what the book is about. And Jesus is the author of the book. So he did a Bible study with these two guys as they walked down the road, showing him all the scriptures, showing how all the scriptures pointed to him. All right. Secondly, what's another observation? We see that Jesus opens the scriptures to us. We see, we see this and we call this in, in Christian theological terms, the doctrine of illumination. The doctrine of illumination. Last week, if you were with us, we talked about the doctrine of inspiration, which is how God breathes the words of scripture into human authors. So the doctrine of illumination sort of goes alongside of that. It's very important. This is a term that we use to describe the work of the Holy Spirit in helping the believer understand the scriptures, not only just uh, from an exegetical standpoint of what it's about, but spiritually discerning what the scriptures are all about. And this is a very fascinating point of our theology of how we understand the Bible. So let's look at the progression in Luke 24. The guys are walking along, and then first it says in verse 16, but their eyes were kept from recognizing who Jesus was. They didn't get it. They were part of the posse. They saw everything going on. They were Jewish. They had significant exposure to their scriptures. They even hung around with the other disciples, the 12. They knew that the women had gone to the tomb and they knew that, that John and Peter had ran to the tomb to verify. They knew all of this stuff. They experienced the story, but they still couldn't see Jesus when he was right there. Why? They just saw him as a dude, a fellow traveler. It's because their eyes were kept from seeing Christ as he, as he was. But that's not the end of the story because after this incredible Bible study in verse 31, it says, and their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And this, is, this is, happens right when they have communion. They have bread, they have communion. Jesus breaks the communion bread and then their eyes are opened and then it says Jesus vanishes. He just beams himself away. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool because he can do that. He can just do that. And then they're like, it was him. Oh my goodness. It was totally him the whole time. And they're just like, oh, they're just high-fiving each other and hugging each other. Oh, goodness, it was him. He was with us. He gave us communion. He taught us a Bible study. What happened between verse 16 and verse 31? Basically, in, in the story, they said, did not our hearts burn with us, within us, while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Jesus opened the scriptures to them. So this is the doctrine of illumination. If you really want to understand what the Bible is spiritually, it's not about how smart you are. It's not about how much theology you, you have. It's not even your ability to, to, to sort of understand logically what authorial intent is in a piece of literature. It's not about cracking the Bible code and being clever. It's about letting the Holy Spirit illuminate the text in your mind. If it were, if it were all about mental just cleverness, 
like that's who becomes a Christian, then every highly intelligent religious professor in America would be a radical born-again Christian right now. And we know that that ain't the case, do we not know that? It's not about human cognitive effort. It's not like we can just attain salvation by figuring stuff out by ourselves, because we can't unless Jesus causes our eyes to be opened, our hearts to be opened. Unless he does that, we will be forever blinded by grace, blinded to his grace. The doctrine of illumination says the spirit of Christ has to come along and through an act of grace, open your eyes, open your heart to the truth of scripture. It's a work of grace to turn the light bulb on. It's not about you. It's not about your intellect. It's not about how clever you are. It's not about the fact that you figured it out and your dumb neighbor did or your dumb buddy didn't. It's the, it's, it's a process that we see here in Luke 24, the doctrine of illumination. And so what we do then in light of this is we say to the Lord, Lord, let not my heart be closed. Let my heart be open. Illuminate my heart to your truth and your grace. Finally, I have to keep going. This is an observation here. Because the Bible's about Jesus, that means it's not about me. And boy, oh boy, that is a very good thing. We don't need, I know, we don't need another thing about us. We don't. We have way too much as it is. We don't need another book, another movie, another website, another philosophy that tells me and tells you, well, you are the hero, bro. It's all about you and what you want and your journey and your story. We hear that constantly. The Bible isn't about me. It's not about you. The Bible is about God. It's about him and his power and his glory and his plan and his sovereignty. It's about his gospel and his, his work to redeem us. It's about his earth and his time and his eternity. It's not about you and what you want and your preferences and what makes you feel safe. The Bible does talk about you and me. Yes, it does. You're in here, but you're not the main character. You know, I think sometimes people pick up the Bible and they're just, oh, I just want God to tell me how amazing I am and just how perfect I am. I'm so strong. I'm so brave. And it's like we're sitting on God's lap and he's just, he's just doing these things. We, we just have so much of that. Look at social media. Look at Instagram. Look at Facebook. It's about my lunch. Look how great I am. It's gotten out of hand. We want to be able to choose everything, self-determine everything. And if we not, if we don't get to, then somehow that's the biggest sin on planet Earth. And somehow that's denying my humanity. It's denying my, my ability to identify myself, including even choosing my own gender. You don't get to do that. God does that for you. It's not about you. It's not about you, bro. It's not about you, sis. You know, when the Bible does talk about us, 
He talks about us, the Lord does. It's a mixed bag. It is. It's a mixed bag at best. It gives us this incredibly accurate picture of humans, of me and you. It says that we are the pinnacle of God's creation. It says that God loves us beyond measure, more than we could possibly imagine or understand. It says that we are the apple of God's eye. It says that we are even above the angels in the hierarchical order of creation. But you know what it also says? It also says our mouths are like open tombs where just death and garbage comes out all the time. It says our hearts are bent towards evil and we're selfish and we're prideful and we're broken with the sin of the world and the sin that we do and the sin that others have done to us. And we're messed up, we're busted up, we're arrogant, we're lust. We're prideful, we're sinful. So the Bible speaks to both our potential and our profound limitations as humans. It's just a real talk about who humans are. And we're part of that. If you're listening to me and you're breathing air, then this is including you. The problem is the Bible, people pick it up and they think it's all about them and it ultimately crushes them because his word, these holy scriptures are about Jesus. So don't make the Bible about you. Don't make it about you. It's going to frustrate you. And you're going to just put it down and walk away. Instead, when you look at the Bible, fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Christ and his matchless glory, my friends. Be transfixed by Jesus. Eyes off self, eyes on him. Eyes off self, eyes on him. Say that to your neighbor. Don't worry. Jesus knows what you need. He's going to take care of you. He's not forgotten you. He will provide for you what you need. So what we do is we ask the Holy Spirit to open up our hearts, ask for the illumination of Jesus to open up my mind and my heart to believe, to fill up my heart with the work and the faith of Jesus Christ who reconciles us to God through the death and burial and resurrection of the King, which is this giant rescue plan for sinners, a ransom paid, redemption bought. Let the Bible lead you into a life with Jesus at the center. Get off the throne own friend of your own life and put Christ on that. You're not the center. I'm not the center. Not another person. Not some stuff. Not a political party or fame or money. It's Christ. It points to Christ. That's about as good as I can do. Let's pray. Lord, less of me and more of you, Jesus. Less of me and more of you. Lord, help us to die daily, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, to just die to ourselves, to get our eyes off ourselves. Help us, when we read the scriptures, to just fix our eyes on you, Jesus, the center point of our life. You animate us. You're the fuel. You're the jet fuel that makes us who we are. Lord, illuminate us, Lord. Let it be an act of grace and mercy that we can even understand this thing called grace. Lord, we love you and we thank you. Lord, let us be captured by you, Jesus, in your word. Lord, we thank you and we pray all of this in your name. Amen.